Thank you very much indeed. It's nice to see you after three years. When, when COVID came, I thought I'd never see Belfast again. And I used to wake up with a cold sweat. But uh, I have been back once before coming back to the Crescent. But it's nice to be here. Uh, and thank you for your warm welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus. Let's open our Bibles to Acts chapter 16 and verse 25. Acts chapter 16 and verse 25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep and seeing the prison doors opened, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. Well, this is God's word and we thank him for it. What a week it's been. What a week for our ex-chancellor. On Monday, he was talking with the prime minister about big issues, the economy, the budget. By Friday, it looked like he'd be selling the big issue. Out of a job, sacked. Having power at his fingertips one minute, the next minute, it's all gone. It reminds me of a man called Karl Otto Koch. He was a commandant of Buchenwald concentration camp. His wife was known as the witch of Buchenwald. Even SS officers complained to the high-ranking officers, this man is a butcher. He has no respect for people. And so he was brought to trial a week before Buchenwald was liberated. He was tried, found guilty, and shot by the very men who were shooting the Jews. One minute he's running a concentration camp, the next minute he's being treated as if he was a prisoner in the concentration camp. How things can change very quickly. And here is a situation in Acts chapter 16 where the Philippian jailer is one minute in charge of the prison. He's part of the mighty system of Rome. The next minute there's an earthquake, the prison doors are flown open, are thrown open, the chains fall off the prisoners. He thinks his life is over. It was basic Roman law. You lose a prisoner, you do the sentence of that prison. Prisoner. With all the prisoners apparently fled, he knew his life was over. Let's take my life. Paul shouted out, no, 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 do yourself no harm. We are all here. 
His world was turned upside down. He thought his prisoners were lost. It turned out for the first time he realized he was lost. And so he cried out, what must I do to be saved? What a question. Have you ever asked that question? A man called Thomas Chalmers, who was minister of a church just south of Dundee, was reading his way through the Acts of the Apostles one day when he came to this verse. He'd been minister there for a number of years, but he wasn't converted. Do you know, it's possible to be in the ministry and not a Christian. And as he read Acts chapter 16 and this man crying out, what must I do to be saved? He heard a voice say to him, Thomas, are you saved? And he realized as a minister he wasn't saved and he committed his life to Christ. His parishioners noticed a change. What's happened to our minister? So he had to explain to them, you may find this hard to believe, my dear folks, but I've become a Christian. His congregation was stunned. All through reading Acts chapter 16. You know about the Titanic. Who am I to tell you about the Titanic in Belfast? You've all heard of John Harper. He's the man who pastored a church in Glasgow and was on his way to to America and he found himself in the waters there and he knew he was finished he knew he was drowning and so he used his final minutes to try and lead people to Christ in the icy waters of the Atlantic what verse did he cry out as he swam around what must I do to be saved and as he swam in the waters he kept saying to people listen believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved Many, many years ago, I preached my way through the book of Acts. Took us many, many weeks. Some actually thought they were going to die in the book. Some did. But it's been a long time since I've looked at the Acts of the Apostles, but knowing I was coming and you'd given me free reign in the morning, you always give me an interesting subject to speak on. Emotional doubt. I envisaged the elders sitting together discussing this series on doubt and thought, emotional doubt, we better ask Earnshaw, he's got problems. <laughs> so having given me a free reign for the morning, my heart has been drawn to this passage and to this question, what must I do to be saved? Well, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. How do I know if God is working in my heart? How do I know that God is putting his finger on my life? It's all here in the passage. And there are six simple things seen in this man's life who was turned upside down in a second. Number one, he was concerned about his soul. What must I do to be saved? He wasn't panicking now about the prisoners because Paul had told him, don't panic, we're all here. So when he said, what must I do to be saved? It's not, how can I get out of this mess? I've lost all my prisoners. I might as well end my life. No, he knew they were all there. He also knew that the earthquake was outside of his domain, so he couldn't be blamed for that, for the destruction of the prison. Therefore, what is he talking about? Why does a man, a prison warder in the middle of the night, shout out, what must I do to be saved? I'll tell you why. Because at midnight, Paul and Silas having been flogged and put in the prison, they were singing praises to God and were praying 
Did you see that little sentence? And the other prisoners were listening. And as these men talked to God and praised God, it became common knowledge. These men have something that is not just physical, it is spiritual. And so when the prison warder cried out, what must I do to be saved? It was against the bite cloth of these men speaking praise and praying to God. I say to myself often, I wonder if someone on our street had a spiritual problem, whether they'd say, let's go and knock at the door of the Earnshaws, because they know God. Not because, oh, he's a minister, but because he knows God. And these, these two men, Paul and Silas, in prison, here they were singing praises to God, and it awakened a quickening in the heart of the Philippian jailer that he too wanted to be saved. My dear friends, when you die, it is not the end. There's that which is of you, which is eternal. You may want to call it your soul. I don't know. The word soul is a very slippery expression in Scripture. But there's that which is of you which will never die. That needs to be saved. And it's interesting, on the day of Pentecost, we're told by Dr. Luke that 3,000 souls were saved. You've all heard of William Wilberforce in relation to the abolition of slavery. As he walked from Parliament to where he used to live, he learned off by heart Psalm 119. And as he used to walk back from Parliament on a regular basis, he was just reciting Scripture, filling his mind with good things. How many of the 600-plus MPs do that these days? As he went around the country trying to drum up support about dealing with the abolition of slavery, and he was very passionate about it. At the end of one meeting, a lady stood up and said, Mr. Wilberforce, wonderful, but what about the soul? Don't forget the soul, Mr. Wilberforce. Meaning, no matter how free a person is, whatever the color of their skin, unless the soul is free, there's no freedom. That's why Charles Wesley, in one of his hymns, says, A charge to keep have I, and a God to glorify, a never-dying soul to save and fit it for the sky. My dear friends, I, I tell you honestly, you won't find this on television. Probably your neighbors won't tell you this, but you need to get right with God. Your soul needs to be sorted out. When I was a student in Cardiff, the minister there, a man called Vernon Hyam, remember him telling the story one Sunday morning, he said, the church caretaker came to see me a number of years ago and said, Mr. Hyam, he waited until everyone had gone after the service, he said, Mr. Hyam, he said, I'm, I'm not too good on the inside. Mr. Hyam thought he was speaking about his health, meaning I won't be in this week. He said, why don't you get some Gaviscon on the way home? No, said the caretaker, it's not my stomach, it's my heart. It's not right. And I want to get right with God. When people speak like that to us, we almost collapse. Because that kind of conversation is rare these days. 
But here's a man 2,000 years ago, he wants to get right with God. What must I do to be saved? In the center of London, there's a small wall which is part of a caretaker's cupboard of a rebuilt church. That wall is the only remaining piece of the old Whitfield's tabernacle. George Whitfield was probably one of the greatest preachers in the 18th century in, in, in our country. Do what they called his church in London in his day? A soul trap. When you went there, you didn't get out. It's as if God caught you by the soul. A soul trap. Wouldn't it be wonderful if the Crescent had the reputation in Belfast as being a soul trap? That when people come here, God does business with them. God puts his finger on their life and begins to cleanse them and to sort them out and to put good things into their soul that people can say, do you know something, when I came here, I was bound, I was lost, I was dirty, but God has washed me, he's cleansed me, he's liberated me, he's set me free, I'm his, I'm his. My dear friends, there's nothing more thrilling than having a concern for your soul. And the only one who can fix that soul is the Lord. We say with the hymn writer, Jesus, lover of my soul, let me fly to you. I say to you, having been a Christian for nearly 50 years, nearly, there's nobody else I've met in those nearly 50 years since I first trusted Christ who can sort you out. There's nobody. I've looked into all religions. I've spoken to many people, hundreds of people, read thousands of books. And I tell you with my hand on my heart, the only person who can sort you out is Jesus Christ. That's why he came. What must I do to be saved? Believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's called having a concern for your soul. My dear friends, never be ashamed of having a concern for your soul. It's important. But then secondly, he was constrained to be baptized. You can imagine some folk going, oh, dear me. Why have you brought baptism up? It's controversial. Well, it's as controversial as you find it here in Scripture. Because we're told that this man, having believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and having had dealings with Paul and Silas, he was then baptized. And not just him, but also his household. When I was 10, my uncle and auntie gave me a Bible for Christmas, and I've been reading it ever since. And in all the decades I've been reading the Word of God, never, ever, ever have I seen baptism treated as a secondary issue. And yet people tell me, oh, baptism's a secondary issue. When I read the way through, my way through the Acts of the Apostles, I read that the Apostles went everywhere saying, repent, repent to God. Number two, believe in Jesus. Number three, get baptized. Why have we called it a secondary issue? And what often happens is one of three things. Number one, 
Some people so overemphasize it that it gets ridiculous. By theological persuasion, I'm a Baptist pastor. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that here, but I've just said it. Lord, have mercy on me. But there are some people who put the emphasis on Baptist. I'm a Baptist. Listen, labels don't count. If you go up, it drops off. If you go down, it burns off. Labels don't count. But, but there are some people who put such an emphasis on, on baptism, it's the only thing. Let's get people baptized. Before the Baptist Times went online, it was published every week, and at the back of the Baptist Times, there was a column of all the people who'd been baptized the previous Sunday in the country. Ten here, three there, one there. It was kind of, look at how many folk are getting baptized. I've come to realize you can get baptized and still be lost. But it's still important. And then there are others who so underplay it as if it doesn't really matter. Presbyterian said to a friend of mine who recently got baptized, listen, wetter doesn't mean better. Well, where's that come from? I admit, wetter doesn't mean better, but I don't get that from the Bible. A lady in my first church many years ago she wasn't baptized. She was waiting for the Lord to tell her to get baptized. I said, he's already told you. She said, where? I said, in Scripture. Oh, no, he must tell me personally. Really? Who do you think you are? And then a man in another church said to me, Pastor, I haven't been baptized. That's why I've not become a member, because I've been baptized in the Holy Spirit. Therefore, that supersedes water baptism. Really? What Bible are you reading? And so while some overplayed and others underplayed, then there are those who optionalize it. It's up to you. I wouldn't fall out over it. It's personal. No, it isn't. It's a command of Scripture. Repent, believe, be baptized. And by the way, how did this man know about baptism? Who told him? Well, obviously, he got it from Paul and Silas. So here are Paul and Silas, having been set free, they're witnessing to this man, and they make the stupid mistake of talking about baptism. That's silly, Paul. That's secondary. No, it isn't. It's part of the gospel. Because in being baptized, we are showing that we have died with Christ, and we've been raised to new life. Whenever I baptize people, I say to people, this is your funeral. Enjoy it. Well, I thought that was funny anyway. Enjoy it. You're telling people, I'm a new person in Christ. And when that man clocked on that night to serve in the Philippian jail, little did he realize by dawn he'd be in the kingdom of God and baptized. Thirdly, he was corrective of his past. Before Paul and Silas were chained to the wall, we're told they were flogged. They were beaten. We're not told that the Philippian jailer actually was involved in this, but he was part of the system. And so here were these men who were worse for wear, chained to a wall, sore backs, aching. They're now set free. The man in charge of the system has just become a Christian. Let me deal with your wounds. 
And here's a man who washes their wounds. It's a bit like the Good Samaritan. Did he pour in oil and wine? That feels better. Thank you, brother. Look, you need a clean shirt. Let's get a clean shirt for you. Thank you. When God is working in your life, you're not only conscious of something going on in your soul, you not only have this conviction to be baptized, but you become concerned about correcting the wrong things that you have done in the past, things that you can correct. I'm sure he said to these two men, brothers, I'm sorry we treated you like this. I'm really sorry. I'm sorry. But I'm going to try and put it right. And I've come to realize probably one of the hardest words to say in the English language is sorry. Speak to any married person. What's the hardest thing to say to your wife? I'm really sorry. Especially if you're a man. Because we don't do sorries, do we? And vice versa, by the way. Same with women to their husbands. I'm really sorry. And I don't know why, but Christians are very good at giving praise to God, but seem to struggle at saying sorry to one another. It kind of sticks in our throats. We just can't get it out. And there's no harm in saying, I'm sorry, I got that wrong. So here's Zacchaeus. When Zacchaeus becomes a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, right, I've been a terrible man. I'm going to restore fourfold from my own money the money that I've stolen from other people. Could you imagine people in Jericho saying, hey, I haven't a clue what's happened to this man Zacchaeus, but he's a changed man, and so is my bank account. I'm going to start taking this seriously. Look at what he's doing. And sometimes when God puts his finger on our life, and we can, we have to go back and say to people, I'm really sorry. The way that I spoke to you, I was an ass. I was stupid. I've come to put that right. Sometimes a letter has to be written. Not a quick email, sorry. But a thought written letter to say, I'm sorry. And who am I again to tell you about W.P. Nicholson? That when the Spirit of God moved through one of his missions, as men came under conviction of sin, they brought back things they'd stolen from the shipyard. As a sign, God has done something in my life, I'm bringing this back. I remember hearing a preacher say how he was expounding his way through the Ten Commandments, and he was speaking on thou shalt not steal. And he said, as I was preaching this, he said, there was a man in the congregation taking notes on a pad that he'd stolen from the office. That's a great, sir. Oh, I've just stolen this. When God is at work, he deals with your soul. He makes you think about the next step of following him. And where you can, you seek to put things right. And then fourthly, 
he was committed to service. What did he do? Well, he rolled up his sleeves and he got involved in, in the Lord's work. Brothers, come back to my house. Let's, let's talk about this. This is unbelievable. You've got to speak to the family. And so Paul and Silas went to this man's home and they began to speak about spiritual service. When Paul got converted on the road to Damascus, one of the first things he said was, Lord, what do you want me to do? Have you ever said that to the Lord? Lord, what do you want me to do? Here's my life. It's now yours. What do you want me to do? Paul had the shock of his life when God told him what he wanted him to do. He said, I, I want you to go around telling people about me and you'll speak to high people in authority. In fact, you'll finish up speaking to the emperor. But by the way, you'll be in chains when you do that and you will suffer. And right at the end of his life, Paul could say to Timothy, Timothy, I've kept the faith and I've run the race. And he said in the Acts of the Apostles, I want to finish my race with joy, having done what God has given me to do. Have you ever said to the Lord, Lord, if you've bought me and my life is no longer my own, it's yours, what do you want me to do? Remember how the Lord Jesus was speaking to Simon Peter after the resurrection about what he was going to do for the kingdom. And Peter did what I often do on a regular basis. I kind of, I look over my shoulder and say, Lord, what about them? And that's exactly what Peter did. As he looked behind, he saw John and said, Lord, that's great. What about him? And Jesus said, Peter, that's got nothing to do with you. You just follow me. And I've come to realize that God gives us all different things to do. Sometimes he says, just carry on doing what you're doing. And speak about me in everyday things. Sometimes he gives people an extraordinary opening, and we thank God for that. But as long as we're doing what he wants us to do. Dale Moody said, the measure of a person... It's not how many servants they have, but how many people they serve. And how about Mr. Spurgeon? Here's Spurgeon addressing his congregation at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Some of you good people do nothing except to go to public meetings and Bible readings and prophetic conferences and other forms of spiritual dissipation. Would it not be better if you would look after the poor and the needy around you, if you would just tuck up your sleeves for work and go and tell the gospel to dying men, if you did that, you would find spiritual health mightily restored. And so I say to myself, if I don't tell our posty about Jesus, who is? And I go, Lord, she may think I'm a bit of a wally. If I start witnessing to our post lady, 
all right preaching in the pulpit, but what about the posty? And then Lord is our, our milkman. He knows I've got a church, but if I don't tell him about Jesus, who's going to tell him? And then there's the people in the shop, our local village shop. Oh, they know I'm a minister. Yeah, but did they know about Jesus? And Lord, if I don't tell them about Jesus, who will? And then suddenly, this idea of, Lord, what do you want me to do? Well, starting a village, David. Start with the postie and the milkman and the couple who run the shop. But by the way, and with the neighbors. Lord, not the neighbors. Let's hope someone does door-to-door evangelism, but Lord, not me. No, the neighbors. And here's a man who said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Fifthly, he was conscious of the lost. Why do you think he took Paul and Silas home? Well, I believe not just to wash their wounds, but he wanted them to explain to his household what had happened. This man was, he was new to this. We don't know what his background really was, what was really going on in his mind, but all this was new to him. He knew he'd been born again, but he couldn't articulate it. Just like if, when you became a Christian, to try and articulate everything that had happened to you was probably impossible. It needed someone to say, this is what has happened. And so what happened? He brought these men home gathered his household around and said, listen, you won't believe this. I become a follower of Jesus. What? Yeah, I become a follower of Jesus. This is how it's happened. What does that mean? I can't fully explain. But these men will explain. And so Paul and Silas explained to the household the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So much so that at the end of the evening, the household believed and got baptized. Wow. Wouldn't it be wonderful if things like that happened? When God has done a work in your soul, you start to have a concern for people who are lost. I find that incredibly challenging because the majority of people I meet in my life are lost people. And there are times in my life, please do not think I'm super spiritual, I'm not, but there are times in my life when the lostness of people just overwhelms me. Saying, David, if you really believe what the Bible says and what you preach, then when people leave this world, They either go to be with Christ or they go to a lost eternity. And when you have to take funeral services, I do, and you're burying a non-Christian, and the family's all non-Christian, and all the relatives are non-Christians, and all the friends are non-Christians, and you're stood in front of a chapel. Sorry, that's a Catholic word around here, isn't it? Church, we call them chapels. I am a pastor in a Baptist chapel, but you understand what I'm saying. When the place is packed out and they've picked hymns that they've probably seen on television, this is a great hymn to sing at the funeral, no one sings, it's a solo from me. 
and you try and talk about Jesus to these people, the hopelessness and the lostness of people overwhelms you. I don't go home and say, there we are. That's another job done right. What's the tea, Jane? Lord, I've just been dealing with 200 lost people. 100 lost people. Lost souls. And when I see people in the world of media and in the world of sport and the world of entertainment, generally speaking, I'm looking at lost people. It doesn't get any better for them. And it's, Lord... Could you use me in some way to tell people about the Lord Jesus? I've been flicking through your hymn book and you have one or two hymns by a man called Horatius Bonner. He had a brother called Andrew. Andrew was pastor of a church in Glasgow, Finiston Church. And when the church was completed, he had chiseled on the lintel over the entrance into the church he that wins souls is wise. And in case he forgot, he also had it in his study. Andrew, never forget, he that wins souls is wise. How about telling the Lord, Lord, if there's something you want me to do, I'm willing to be a soul winner. Lord, I'm willing to be a person who is happy to lose face telling people about Jesus. Because if we don't, who's going to tell them? He was conscious of the lost. And the final thing to say is this, he was congenial in his fellowship. He brought them home. He watered them. He fed them. He washed them. He clothed them. And then we're told the whole household was baptized. Wow, what hit them? Now, please, don't start reading in what isn't there. There are people who say, well, this passage proves the baptizing of children. We're not told there were children there. This is his household. And a household to someone in Roman authority meant those under his authority. Slaves, people who work for him. Did he call his office staff in? Did he call the slaves in and say, listen to these men? There may have been children there. But I tell you this, having lived a religious life for nearly 30 years, I can't imagine the Apostle Paul condoning Christian religiosity having just come out of that stuff. He wouldn't baptize anyone unless they'd believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when it comes to household salvation, I've met people, quite a few in my life, who say, I'm, I'm believing God for household salvation. Where do you get that from? Acts chapter 16. You and your household... I believe that Paul was speaking prophetically here into this man's life. God has done something here, and you and your household will be saved. And they did. They got saved. And then they were baptized. Isn't it good to find someone 
who wants to put goodness into the life of somebody else. But as God's people, that is what we're called to do. If you're like me, wow. Wasn't the two years of COVID interesting? As a pastor, it was. And the stuff that people dumped into my life, the negativity, the criticisms, the this, the that. Is life worth living? I said to my wife, is this it? I'm not talking about the world, I'm talking about the church. My dear friends, we come to church not to offload our negative stuff into people's lives, we come to build them up in Jesus. We come to put good things into people's lives. We do not minister to people out of our baggage, but out of our luggage. Come on, brothers. I'm really sorry. Come home. There'll be a meal there. There's water. There's clean clothes. Listen, we're going to have a great time. Come and tell these people about Jesus. My dear friends, please... When you see another soul, you haven't the faintest idea the journey that they're on. What a struggle it's been to even get to the door of the church on a Sunday morning. And therefore, my philosophy as a pastor is this. Thank God they're here. Lord, help me put something good into that person's soul. Help me, Lord, build them up rather than weigh them down so that when they go home, they say, Lord, thank you. I go home with something of your goodness in my life. Wouldn't it be great being in a fellowship full of Philippian jailers? I'd love it. You wouldn't need a, you wouldn't need a membership class. You're in right away, brother. With that kind of attitude, we need you. Why? Because there are so many people here who need the goodness of God in their soul. How do I know God is at work in my life? Look at the Philippian jailer. It's all there. There's a hymn which mm, has interesting theology. Wouldn't stand by the theology, but I understand what the hymn writer is saying. What a wonderful change in my heart has been wrought since Jesus came into my heart. Well, Jesus can't come into your heart because Jesus is in heaven. But I know what the hymn writer is saying. It is so easy to sing that. But if someone said to you, but what are those wonderful changes? Yeah. What are those wonderful changes that have taken place in my heart since I opened my heart to the Lord Jesus. The signs are all here. Let's pray together.
Father, how life can change very quickly from being in charge of a prison to finding yourself on your knees crying out for eternal life. From being Chancellor of the Exchequer and the next minute sacked. Father, who knows what tomorrow brings? Therefore, all the more reason that we have a living relationship with yourself. Father, I thank you for these dear people who've come this morning. Would you work in their souls? Make them conscious of their inside. Those who were thinking about baptism, Lord, to show them this is the way. This is the way. Now obey. And Father, we pray for all of us that we may have this, this concern for lost people and this desire not to pull people down, but to build them up, to put good things into their life. Father, thank you that one day we're going to see the Philippian jailer. That's almost unbelievable. But because of your grace, it's possible. Thank you, Father, that you've sent your son into the world to save people just like us. Father, if we claim to be saved, may be evident to those that we live with, these people have met with Jesus. Father, if I've been wrong on anything, just wash these words out of our minds. But what is of you? Underline it, I pray, by the Holy Spirit, because I ask it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.